0: I'm very pleased to be able to introduce Harvey Whitehouse, who has, as Oxford is here at Oxford and is director of the, uh so right, Centre for the Anthropology of Mind. And he used to be at Queen's University of Belfast, where he's founding director of the Institute of Cognition and Culture. So Harvey's been reading this paper about religion,
1: cohesion, and hostility, and then we have commentary from Professor Wong, Michael Wong, who's come away from Monash. Well, thank you, and as you heard, this is the last one in the day, so we can all begin to unwind a bit, perhaps sit back and relax a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm going to, and in fact... I'm going to... <laughs> um, but you can close your eyes if you want, just sit back and relax. <laughs> So Russell and Steve began their position paper for this um, meeting with the (coughs) debates triggered by 9-11. Now the attacks on the World Trade Centre were undoubtedly an expression of extreme intolerance. But was that uh, intolerance religiously motivated? And can religious impulses, conversely, be a force for greater understanding and mutual respect across cultures, faiths and nations? Well, I think that if we're going to address these questions adequately, we really must have a clear and precise conception of what constitutes religion and religious motivation. Scholars have been struggling with that problem for a long time and gaining, sound to say, uh, very little traction. The difficulty seems to be that religion is not a, a kind of coherent and stable feature of the world. Rather, the term is used to designate a loose family of behavioural and psychological traits. The criteria for membership of this family differ not only among scholars, but also among those using the term religion in everyday life. And these criteria, whatever they may be, are both arbitrary and historically contingent. So if we're going to make progress, many of us now think it's necessary to give up on the idea of religion as some kind of monolithic entity and instead to fractionate the category into the myriad component features that are commonly associated with the term. These include, for instance, the postulation of supernatural beings, of life after death, of divine creation, uh, of ritual efficacy, and there are others. Now, these apparently universal features of human thinking and behavior uh, seem to deserve some kind of overarching label, like religion, but in reality, the causes of their occurrence may well be largely independent. For example, our intuition that dead relatives are still, in some sense, around may be quite unrelated to our propensity to perform rituals in times of stress or uncertainty. Afterlife beliefs and rituals are, of course, often connected by more or less shared systems of meaning expressed in discourse at social events like funerals and seances. And they form part of larger cultural systems that are transmitted across populations and handed down over generations. But the psychology needed to build a particular set of uh, religion concepts uh, relating, for instance, to ancestors may be very different from what's required to build other kinds of religious (coughs) concepts, for instance, concerning why rituals work. And the processes of cultural evolution that regulate the formation and spread of religious (coughs) systems may also actually discriminate between different sectors of those systems. So it's not that religion per se is responsible for our attitudes towards others, whether rational or fanatical, whether tolerant or judgmental, Instead, we need to carve up the ill-defined category of religion and use the dissected parts as our units of explanation. But even having broken down the category of religion, there's a further problem. Any one of the dissected parts could pick out phenomena that would not ordinarily be classified as religious. For instance, while God concepts involve the attribution of supernatural properties, for instance, the ability to uh, know people's guilty secrets. The same could also be said of concepts like Father Christmas, uh, which few would describe as religious. Similarly, although afterlife beliefs expressed in things like ancestor worship or notions of heaven and hell are quite easily labelled religious, there are also widespread ideas about ghosts and spooks that are less rid- readily uh, classified as religious concepts. And the same, of course, could be said about ritual. Ritual is often understood to be a religious trait, but not necessarily, of course. We can all perform <coughs> secular rituals too. So what I really want to stress is that religion is a slippery cultural category. It's something that changes over time and is used for different purposes in varied contexts. Now, the focus in well, uh, everything I have to say hereafter is really going to be on just one feature namely ritual rather than on the, any of these other traits that I briefly mentioned we could define ritual as any action that is irreducible to technical motivations um, now in the case of non-ritual actions we can in principle identify the causal links between procedures and intended outcomes but this is not the case with ritualised behaviour the manner in which the actions are linked to goals is inherently mysterious, or at least opaque. The performance of rituals has a broad range of social and psychological consequences. And my guiding question is going to be whether rituals can influence our capacities for tolerance and intolerance towards other people. And much of the evidence that I'm going to present on this question comes from our Explaining Religion project funded by the European Union, Uh, currently in its closing phases, ending this year. But I'll also summarise new research that's currently in progress uh, or planned. Now, before we can get really cracking with this, there's one other thing I think we need to clarify, which is what we mean by the word tolerance. Uh, Fortunately, Russell and Steve uh, have provided us, furnished us with a a definition or a working definition. Uh, uh, Tolerance, they say, is the willingness to acknowledge or even defend the rights of others to engage in behaviour that we ourselves find objectionable. And they go on to distinguish uh, pragmatic tolerance, which might be a means to some kind of less tolerant end, uh, from ideological tolerance, uh, such as liberalism. Both kinds of tolerance might be observed, of course, in religious organisations. For instance, a Catholic bishop might tolerate the wayward behaviour of revelers at annual uh, carnivals for pragmatic reasons. For instance, because uh, experience has shown that to intervene too heavy-handedly causes division and defection, and not because the bishop in question uh, thinks tolerance is desirable for its own sake. But the same bishop may adopt policies of toleration towards members of other faiths as an expression of commitment to some kind of doctrinal principle, like the Golden Rule. Now, the focus in what I have to say is all on ideological tolerance. Arguably, the extension of that kind of tolerance to humanity at large is comparatively rare. More commonly among the world's local cults, regional movements, and even the so-called world religions... Both everyday thinking and more rarefied theologizing extends tolerance, respect and reciprocity only to those who abide by the laws and obligations of the tradition, endorsing sanctions against outsiders, defectors and nonconformists with varying degrees of severity. Universal tolerance is an expressed ideal, of course, of some ethical religions, for instance, undergirding the Christian injunction to love thy enemy. But it remains an empirical question whether such ideals can, in practice, uh, serve to counteract our pan-human inclinations towards groupishness, tit-for-tat justice, and moral indignation. Exceptional individuals, perhaps such as Jesus and Mother Teresa, have appeared to practice what they (coughs) preach, but how widely emulated are such figures, and how are we to explain the emergence and persistence of the values that they embodied in the first place? Well, over the last 20 years, we've been studying the effects of rare and traumatic rituals on cohesion, trust, and tolerance in small groups. We found that such rituals also have a darker side, fermenting outgroup hostility, sectarianism, and warfare. We've also seen, um, well, we've also been focusing on the effects of routinised rituals in the formation of much larger scale communal identities. Much of our research has focused on mechanisms of proximate causation, especially the psychological mechanisms uh, and processes involved in ritual and <coughs> building. But we're also interested in the ultimate causes of variable patterns of tolerance and intolerance within a broader evolutionary framework. This work might also help us to assess the prospects for more universalistic forms of tolerance, emphasising the common rights and responsibilities of humankind as a whole, the topic with which we'll sort of end. Now, within a group, members will inevitably harbour some negative views of fellow members, at least some of the time. Levels of tolerance towards other members of the in-group often seem to be regulated by participation in rituals. The notion that rituals promote social cohesion actually has a very long, quite illustrious history But efforts to tease apart the psychological mechanisms involved really only took off in the 1950s, much of the work inspired by Festinger's theory of cognitive dissonance. (coughs) Rituals incurred costs, like time, labour, psychological endurance, often with the promise of only poorly defined or indeterminate rewards, and in some cases, for no explicit purpose at all. In the case of initiations, which of course are a distinctive class of rituals, marking induction into groups, the costs are often extreme, involving physical and psychological tortures. In a now classic application of Festinger's theory, Aaron and Mills, in 1959, demonstrated that the more severe the requirement for entry into an artificially created group, the greater would be the participants' liking for other group members. Their explanation for this was that our feelings towards the groups we join will, uh, never wholly be, uh, will, n- will never be entirely positive, and the experience of disliking aspects of the group will be dissonant with the experience of having paid a price to join in the first place. This dissonance could be resolved by downplaying the costs of entry, but the greater the severity of initiations into the group, the less sustainable that strategy will become. Under these circumstances, dissonance reduction will focus instead on generating more positive evaluations of the group. The line of argument that I've just described has been augmented more recently by research, uh, for instance inspired by costly signalling theory, suggesting that participation in traumatic initiations signals commitment and loyalty to the group. Now, over a number of years, we've been studying a particular class of rituals that includes initiations, but also a much wider range of phenomena, which I refer to as rites of terror. The hallmark of such rituals is that participants undergo them uh, only infrequently in the role of patient, and they evince extremely high levels of dysphoric arousal, typically pain or fear, and in many cases, both of those things. Um, in a recent survey of six hundred and forty four rituals selected from a sample of seventy four cultures, Quentin Atkinson and I found that uh, we, what we found basically was an inverse correlation between ritual frequency and levels of dysphoric arousal, with most uh, rituals clustering around the uh, two poles of the continuum i 'm sorry this this slide is a little bit sort of overly detailed isn't it doesn oh, okay.
0: <laughs> 't.
1: Not <laughs> a good moment to turn it off. Sorry, which one is the point <coughs> Oh, sorry. sorry, of course. Not concentrating. Okay, so it's this one. Okay, well, um, what we see here is, is just that if you put all the measures of arousal together, you get an inverse uh, uh, correlation between the frequency with which rituals are performed and the levels of arousal. But the really interesting story is here. This blue line represents dysphoric arousal, and as you can see, as rituals become less frequent than annual, The levels of dysphoric nasty unpleasant arousal get cranked up higher and higher whereas the sort of more jolly euphoric pleasant aspects of ritual drop off after peaking around uh, uh, annual frequency. It's not just an inverse correlation, we find a real bunching here that if you look at these sort of heat maps dysphoric arousal tends to be, uh, all all rituals at a very low frequency tend to involve very high levels of dysphoric arousal and if they're very uh, high-frequency rituals, you, d- you can't sustain those sorts of levels. So that's, uh, those are really the key points from that slide. Now, our research into the mechanics of low-frequency dysphoric rituals has some interesting implications for both cognitive dissonance and for costly signalling theories and others like them. First, in our survey, most low-frequency dysphoric rituals were not used to mark entry into a group. They served a diversity of overt goals, Things like communion with gods and spirits, honouring the dead, uh, veneration of icons, the promotion of crop fertility, and on and on. Moreover, extensive analysis of case studies has shown that there's considerable variability in the rationale assigned to the rituals by participants. And in some cases, no rationale at all uh, is provided. Secondly, we found that participation in dysphoric rituals is commonly coerced, it's forced. The sanctions for not participating are often more severe than complying, than going ahead with it. So the link between suffering on the one hand and things like liking and loyalty towards the group on the other may not be as simple as first appears. Our research has opened up uh, some new perspectives on the role of dysphoric rituals in promoting group cohesion and exclusivity. One factor that seems to be extremely important is memory. One-off, unique, that's to say, traumatic episodes, uh, especially ones that are surprising and consequential for those taking part, are remembered over very long time periods and with greater vividness and accuracy than less emotionally arousing events. Such memories specify not only details of the event itself, but what else happened uh, immediately afterwards, for instance, and who else was present. And this last point is especially important in establishing the kind of boundedness of ritual communities. There's very little scope to add to or subtract from ritual groups whose membership derives from these sorts of uniquely encoded one-off experiences. Another really key factor seems to be interpretive creativity. Since the procedures entailed in rituals are a matter of stipulation and are not transparently related to any overall goals, if indeed those goals are articulated at all, the meanings of the acts present something of a puzzle for participants. In the case of traumatic ritual experiences that are recalled for many months, many years even, after the actual event, questions of symbolism and purpose are typically a major focus of attention. In a series of experiments using artificial rituals and varying the levels of arousal, uh, we've shown that after a time delay, the volume and specificity of spontaneous reflection on the meanings of rituals is substantially greater in high arousal conditions than in controls. We've demonstrated similar effects in field studies by systematically comparing the interpretive richness of people's accounts of rituals involving variable levels of arousal. Since rites of terror are also typically shrouded in secrecy and taboo, participants have little opportunity to compare the contents of their personal ruminations and so form the impression that their rich interpretations are actually shared by other people who've gone through the same experience, increasing and cranking up the sense of camaraderie. Rights of terror produce exceptionally intense cohesion among small, exclusive communities of ritual participants. Groups formed in this way display very high levels of trust, cooperation and tolerance uh, towards fellow members. But there is, of course, also, as we've been hearing a lot about today, a much darker side to this syndrome, which finds expression in hostility towards outsiders. Comparative research has revealed a strong correlation between rights of terror and chronic intergroup conflict and warfare. Recent studies have used psychological experiments, economic games, and cross-cultural surveys to show that within-group liking and out-group hostility are closely connected. As one games theorist neatly put it, and I love this quote, he said, when Joshua killed 12,000 heathen in a day, and gave thanks to the Lord afterwards by carving the Ten Commandments in stone, including the phrase, Thou shalt not kill. He was not being <laughs> hypocritical. <laughs> so understanding uh, small group cohesion and out group hostility um, it, uh, requires this sort of focus on these sorts of proximate mechanisms. But also, uh, we, if we want to understand this in an evolutionary framework, we need to pay close attention also to the ultimate causes, Uh, we need to look at the uh, functions of rituals as a way of explaining why they spread and persist over time. Cultural evolution is governed, I think, by the same fundamental principles that apply to biological evolution, except that inheritance, in the case of cultural evolution, is by learning rather than by genes. Selection by consequences for cultural traits tends to be rapid compared with selection of genetically pre-specified traits Adaptive cultural mutations arise frequently, often as a result of deliberate innovation. I had a little discussion about that earlier. Whereas mutations in biological evolution uh, occur comparatively rarely. And finally, prior cultural forms are only loosely constraining in cultural evolution. After all, cultural revolutions do sometimes happen. But whereas basic features of anatomy and physiology Uh, imply really quite tight constraints on what uh, future forms are possible. Um, There's a kind of looser set of constraints provided by tradition. Nevertheless, the study of how ritual variability affects the survival of cultural groups, for instance, can be understood in the same basic terms that any evolutionary biologist would recognize. The crunch question is how changing features of a given group's ecology and resourcing needs might make the adoption of Particular ritual forms adapted (coughs) by contributing to group survival, for instance, and reproduction over time. Allowing also for the possibility of drift, random factors contributing to the ritual's persistence, and phylogeny, the constraints imposed by pre-existing ritual traditions. Rites of terror evolve in conditions where survival depends on very high levels of in-group cohesion. For instance, cooperative hunting of very dangerous animals. Trading across dangerous environments, like uh, you know, sort of dangerous seas, for instance. Practices like bride capture and head hunting. All these carry risks, significant risk, and very strong temptations to defect. Dysphoric rituals, including uh, brutal initiations, are most prevalent in societies engaging in these kinds of high-risk activities. Traumatic initiations are found not only in bellicose tribal societies, but also in uh, the constituent cells of modern armies, terrorist organizations, and rebel groups. Currently, we're planning a major survey of rituals, of group morphology, and patterns of conflict over 5,000 years of recorded history through the collaboration of professional historians who will help us to construct an online database. The aim of this is to produce an evolutionary account of the relationship between ritual frequency, arousal, group size, and a number of other variables over many traditions in changing ecologies. Now, as I said earlier, our global survey of ritual diversity confirmed the prediction that rituals come in two main varieties. On the one hand, we've got these low frequency but very, very dysphorically arousing rituals, uh, the issue that we've just looked at, but we also get high frequency and much less emotionally arousing rituals, which is the variety of ritual behaviour I now want to kind of focus on. High-frequency ritual, or routinization as it's often called, is a hallmark of world religions and their offshoots, but is also characteristic of a great many regional traditions and new religious movements. Routinized rituals play a major role in the formation of large-scale identities, enabling complete strangers to recognize each other as members of a (coughs) common in-group, facilitating trust and cooperation on a scale that would otherwise be quite impossible. To disambiguate the proximate mechanisms involved, we need to return, I think, briefly to our, uh, discuss- our studies of how rituals get remembered. When people participate in the same rituals on a daily or weekly basis, it's impossible for them to recall the details of every occasion. Instead, they represent the rituals and their meanings as types of behaviour, as a holy communion, a call to prayer, or whatever. Psychologists describe these representations as procedural scripts and semantic schemas. Scripts and schemas specify what typically happens in a given ritual and what is generally thought to be its significance. When we conceptualize beliefs and practices in this way, we don't mentally represent the actors and believers as particular persons, but only as incumbents of more generic qualities and roles, as worshippers, imams, gurus, choir boys, whatever. In other words, what it means to be a, a, a participant in a tradition um, of this kind is generalised beyond people of our acquaintance, applying to anyone who performs similar acts and holds similar beliefs. This route to the construction of communal identity based on routinization is a necessary condition for the emergence of really large imagined communities, big populations sharing a common tradition and capable... of behaving as a coalition in interactions with non-members, despite the fact that no individual member of the community could possibly know all the others, or even hope to meet all of them in the course of a lifetime. Routinisation has other important effects as well. For instance, it allows very complex networks of doctrines and narratives to be learned and stored in collective memory, making it relatively easy to spot unauthorised innovations. We've also shown that frequent repetition of rituals artificially suppresses creativity, in effect fostering a more slavish conformism to group norms. In one experiment, for instance, we had a group of 30 students perform an unfamiliar ritual twice a week for 10 weeks and ask them to post comments on the meanings of the ritual after each performance. Reflexivity dramatically declined once the ritual had become a familiar routine, and part of the reason seems to be that having achieved procedural fluency, one no longer needs to reflect on how to perform the ritual uh, in order uh, to perform it, and therefore one becomes less likely to reflect on why one does it. These kinds of studies suggest that routinization assists quite considerably in the transmission of doctrinal orthodoxies, that is, traditions of beliefs and practices that are relatively immune to innovation and in which unintended deviation from the norm is extremely easy to detect, and therefore to punish. Putting all these things together, it would seem that routinized rituals contribute to the formation of large-scale communities capable of encompassing indefinitely many individuals, singing from the same hymn sheet, if you like, both literally and metaphorically. Um, Expanding the size of the in-group in this way has implications... For the scale on which people can engage in cooperative behaviour, extending both trust and tolerance even to strangers, simply because they carry the same uh, insignia uh, that display uh, shared beliefs and uh, practices. At the same time, though, the cohesion engendered through common membership of the tradition is less intensely felt than that accomplished in small groups undergoing rare and painful rituals together. In other words, as cohesion is extended to greater populations, it is in some sense also spread uh, more thinly. Some routinized traditions, though, manage to get the best of both worlds. A mainstream tradition constructed around regular worship under the surveillance of an ecclesiastical hierarchy um, may tolerate, and I mean this in the practical, tactical sense, may tolerate much more colorful local practices involving rare dysphoric rituals, like voluntary crucifixion at Easter reenactments of the Passion, for instance in the Philippines and elsewhere, or walking on red hot coals, a practice uh, found in northern Greece among the Anastenaria. While these localised practices undoubtedly produce highly solidary groups, distinct from the mainstream tradition, the resulting cohesion can be projected onto the larger community, rejuvenating commitment to its unremitting regime of repetitive rituals. This has been shown by analysing over a hundred detailed case studies in collaboration with historians and anthropologists. Alternative scenarios are also possible, though. That grand theorist of Muslim society, Ernest Gellner, showed that rural tribes bound together by low-frequency, high-arousal rituals constituted the most formidable military units in Islam, capable of periodically toppling urban elites whose more routinized rituals were powerless to generate the same levels of cohesion needed to mount an effective defense. We're currently attempting to model all these patterns mathematically as we seek to situate our findings within a broader kind of evolutionary framework. Now, in terms of ultimate causation, a key challenge is to find out which factors favor the appearance and persistence of routinized rituals and the large-scale communities they engender. One strand of our research has been focused on the first appearance of routinized collective rituals in the Neolithic Middle East. Some years ago, archaeologist Steve Mythen attempted to apply my theories of ritual and group formation to the prehistory of Western Asia over a really long time period, 13,000 years, ending at the famous site of Çatalhöyük in what's now central Anatolia in Turkey. Mythen's account prompted a number of subsequent studies that led us to the conclusion that up to the time of Chattelhea, there's no evidence of routinized religion or of the sort of large scale groups uh, um, that I've been describing in this region, in Europe and Western Asia. I became increasingly interested in the origins of the first routinized religions and teamed up with the director of the site at Chattelhea, Ian Hodder, to develop a study of ritual frequency, arousal, and group formation over a long time period, nearly 2,000 years, of settlement at Çatalhöyük. What we found in the early layers of the site were only low frequency high arousal rituals, detectable from looking at uh, animal remains, um, at uh, hunting and feasting activities, the things left over from those activities, pictorial representations of major rituals, and extensive evidence on burial practices and the manipulation of human remains. Collective rituals at Çatalhöyük would have produced extremely cohesive groups, the sort that you would have needed, actually, to cooperate in the hunting of very large, dangerous animals. The boundedness of the groups at Çatalhöyük is still visible today in the massive trenches that divided communities in the earlier phases of settlement. But as hunting gradually gave way to farming, the need for such groups disappeared, and instead more day-to-day forms of cooperation across the settlement were required to sustain novel forms of specialised labour, reciprocity, pooling and storage. Sustainable exploitation of the commons, if you like, now required a shift from small group living to larger scale forms of collective identity, trust and cooperation, extending to tens of thousands of individuals at the enlarged settlement. This extension of tolerance, if you like, for want of a better phrase, was facilitated by the appearance of the first ever collective uh, uh, regular collective rituals focused around daily production and consumption and the spread of identity markers across the entire settlement for instance in the form of stamp seals used for body do- decoration and more standardized pottery designs since january this year much of the data gathered from chattel including tens of thousands of individual finds has been uploaded onto an electronic database allowing us the opportunity to recode the material and apply powerful statistical tests in pursuing current and new hypotheses. We're hoping to extend this work to wider regions, especially the Levant and Mesopotamia, so we can join the record together eventually with the 5,000-year uh, year historical database. The successful spread of routinized rituals culminating in the world religions we know today may be linked to the need for greater trust and cooperation as social networks expand. Forging exchange networks with relative strangers is obviously easier if you share the same cultural markers, effects that could be amplified by also signalling belief in an omniscient and punitive deity, the topic of the talk we just heard from Arrow. Common identity can also facilitate the extraction of taxes and tribute, from widely distributed populations or the coordination of a more complex division of labour. In complex societies, the adoption of routinised rituals capable of uniting really large populations provides a competitive advantage over people who lack shared identity markers of this kind. So let me conclude very briefly by returning to the position document for this conference in which Russell and Steve wrote... Religion has two faces when it comes to social behavior. One that produces a sense of compassion, brotherhood, and concern for others, and another, darker face, that leads to intolerance, bigotry, and violence. And this, I think, has been a really recurrent thread in all the papers that we've heard today. I think Russell and Steve are right about this. I think that small groups bound together by rare traumatic rituals will make extraordinary sacrifices and endure great hardships for the common good, but when provoked, will show in equal measure hatred and intolerance towards outsiders. Tolerance, compassion and brotherhood can be extended to larger communities through the adoption of more routinised rituals. But there are limits to the scale on which this kind of tolerance can be extended. In times of hardship or intergroup conflict or competition, larger, more inclusive communities close the door on outsiders and may, of course, launch missiles at them when the opportunity arises. A major factor here would seem to be levels of existential anxiety. The more insecure the individual or the group, the more intolerant and intransigent will be the stance towards outsiders. So extending the inclusivity of routinized religions to the world at large may require exceptionally high levels of affluence and existential security. When that happens, though, our need for belonging diminishes. We can abandon our ritual traditions and the collective identities they engender more or less at will. This process, of course, is usually called secularisation. It's almost uh, entirely restricted to places like Scandinavia, rich in resources, uh, natural resources, and buttressed by a welfare state that provides a safety net for everybody, regardless of ethnicity, religion, or class. On this view, liberalism and tolerance are the mirror image of ritual and tradition rather than the guardians of uh, religious pluralism. As soon as we can afford to be liberal and tolerant relativists, the irony is we actually all become the same. Thank you. Um, we have a commentary
0: from Professor Michael
1: from uh, One Edge. So please stand up as you as you
0: wish. <laughs> Thanks for for this very, very uh, stimulating and informative talk. For a newcomer like myself, I, I find um, very encouraging and, uh, and reassuring in the sense that um, a, a phenomenon as or a concept as simply as religion seems to be able to be uh, dissected you know, into components to facilitate a, a very, uh, uh, I would say, empirical study. Being a doctor, you know, I find that a very uh, kind of, uh, encouraging. And, uh, Number two, I think I'm very, very uh, kind of uh, um, impressed by um, your attempt to try to uh, put into just a position of a very, very uh, emotionally-laden kind of phenomenon like this uh, kind of a a right of torture with a very relatively uh, objective, well-defined, and and empirical approach. Uh, notion of uh, uh, low-frequency, high-emotion arousal and its relationship with dissonance, dissonance uh, reduction, cohesiveness, and I think this is kind of providing us an example of how a very complex phenomenon um, can be studied um, in a very objective manner without you know, going into a purely kind of reductionist kind of uh, uh, result and losing out the actual rich emotional aspect uh, of religious experience. And uh, being a psychiatrist, I'm particularly interested in, um, in, in this focus on the emotionality of a religious experience. You choose um, the level of study that's a small group, Although I would actually be more interested in looking at whether many of uh, the things that you look at uh, can be at the individual level. Although you did at the end mention about this existential kind of confidence, and whether you know, other socio psychosocial development, including uh, efforts in society and level of education, can whether you know, can actually help us to develop or do without rituals. In, uh, uh achieving certain uh, sense of identity and meaning for us. The third point that I want to uh, comment upon is actually about this aboriginalization. And uh, I find that uh, you seem to be able to kind of uh, use this, again, notion of concept to explain some very common uh, kind of phenomenon, you know, like uh, how people with very different backgrounds can come together by just performing some very simple act, and can develop a, a sense of identity or kinsmanship with someone with totally different background, uh, but simply by you know by singing the same hymns. And um, so this, I think, this notion of Christianisation may actually I think have wider application even beyond religious context into promoting uh, tolerance, if not actually a uh, sense of community and cooperativeness. I think the last comment that I want to comment at, as, as a psychiatrist is about the ritual uh, uh, phenomenon, ritualistic phenomenon. Uh, among psychiatrists, there's always for, for, especially for those who follow Freudian kind of uh, tradition, we, we tend to see um, religion as more like an obsession Uh, So, a lot of rituals there seems to be a, uh, I would say, a defense mechanism against some uh, uh, underlying anxiety. (coughs) In a sense, some of the data suggest that, uh, but at the same time, I think the way you approach ritual also helps to go beyond um, these uh, rather, uh, what I I call following uh, Paul Rico's ideas of uh, I mean, I think your approach uh, to explain ritual basically helps us to understand um, some of the religious behavior without explaining that away. And uh, on that point, I think I, 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 I would say actually I find that very appreciative of this attempt. And I would say that will bring many of the skeptics towards religious behaviour or religious preoccupation among uh, patients with mental problems, including obsessive compulsive behaviour. Um, so in the sense that they will just dismiss them, but we try to look at those uh, kind of behaviour in a more positive light. I think I should stop there and uh, let uh, others to, to continue the discussion.
1: Sir, so, you me. just want to respond. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I could have uh, but thank you very much for this. Um, very kind, appreciative response. So I, I'm not sure you really wanted me to reply to it, but I, I'm happy to say something quickly, which yes, is just that, I mean, there's another side to this study of rituals that, you know, to the work we've been doing on rituals, which I didn't really mention, which has to do with what motivates participation, or under what circumstances people um, are more likely or less likely to um, participate in a ritual that is um, uh, available for them to join in. And I guess things like anxiety and compulsiveness could come into the story in in all kinds of interesting ways. So for instance, um, it may be that people are more prone to perform rituals in situations where the uh, likelihood of uh, a desired outcome occurring is rather lower than it would In other circumstances, or they may be, it may be that ritual behaviors um, have some of the uh, characteristics that you find in people who suffer from uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and the sorts of behaviors they display. And it could be that that is because we have some kind of uh, special mechanism built into the way our brains are constructed, some kind of perhaps a hazard precaution mechanism that is. the task of which is to be able to identify inputs in the environment that uh, flag the potential hazards or contaminants and that lead them to somewhat stereotype responses, the sorts of responses that we see recurring uh, with extraordinary regularity across a very wide range of rituals cross culturally. Um, but the questions about what, you know, these are all interesting and valid questions, and, and I think that they. Complement and fit with the kind of story that I'm I'm telling, but aren't aren't an essential part of it.